Good to see you guys. Hope you had a, a really good Thanksgiving. Uh, I don't know if you guys are like me. Uh, Turkey's been a little ruined for me here recently. Uh, ever since having John smoke turkey uh, here, like nothing's the same, okay? So like I go to my grandma's and just like, can I have some of that dried out white <laughs> turkey meat? And like, it's just not the same. So I just wanted to apologize to you because maybe you have been robbed of some Thanksgiving joy because of uh, things like last Sunday. So, uh, hey, isn't our building look awesome? Like, there's a lot of people that spent a lot of time putting this stuff together. I'll tell you, it wasn't me. I can tell you that. It wasn't me. I'm not uh, a Christmas decor kind of guy, but we have a lot of people that are, and I'm thankful for them. Hey, this week we're going to start a new series called Go. Um, We have focused uh, before our, our fall family feast on a series called Uh, connected, and that was really about us and our life inside the church. Now we're going to take the next four weeks here before Christmas, which is going to be Christmas that soon. We're going to take the next four weeks and kind of talk about going, how how we take our faith outside, how we are equipped to to do those things. Uh, Go is all about empowering you to make Jesus known. Like we desire to teach you, to help you understand, to remember the call that God has on our life, to make him known, to tell about him, to, to in, exhibit his lifestyle in us to others. And we're going to try to do that in a fresh way uh, to help remove some fear and some, some kind of confusion around this term evangelism. That's kind of a big term, and it can be an intimidating term, and we want to kind of bring it into a way that maybe it brings some... Uh, some courage to you in that. So some of the things that we're going to walk through in this next four weeks comes from a book that was written by a guy named Bill Hybels. It's a book called uh, Becoming a Contagious Christian. We have some copies of that book out in our welcome desk. You're welcome to go there. You can purchase them. Uh, But there are going to be some things in that book that we're going to center around our teachings, especially in the area of evangelism. Uh, But today, we, we want to take a moment to examine like the Great Commission, The Great Commission is something that Jesus says in Matthew 28, starting in verse 16. We want to take some time to really dive into that commission, uh, but before we do that, we're going to, before we journey on that, we're going to take a little detour here uh, to get there. This past week, Tara Holliday, who was our middle school uh, youth pastor, she told me a story that I thought was too good not to tell, and it also kind of goes where we want to go in this series. Uh, She told me a, a story about one of her small group, some middle school boys, small group, right? Picture middle school boys in a small group. They learned about a difficulty in the life of one of their friends in their group, and they were taken back with it. And so they thought to themselves, well, we need to do something here. And so they talked to their small group leader. They conferred with each other, and they decided that they were going to leave that week and go back to their houses and bring some, back of their, bring some of their own money back the following Sunday, and, and they were going to gift it to this student and his family. Like, that's middle school boys, right? And, like, I, middle school boys, I'm sorry if you're in there, like, awkward turtle. Middle school boys, like, you remember those middle school ages. And, like, to have middle school boys hear a need of a friend and go and collect money, they brought back $225. And then they wrote a note to mom because mom, you know, if you're a middle school boy and your son brings $225 home, you got lots of questions on where that money came from. <laughs> Wrote her a note, and just, she sobbed, reading what these boys did for him. I just, that's amazing to me. 
And there are two things that stick out in, to me in that story. Is number one, I think we can take this for granted. This young man found a safe spot for, for him to come and share the struggles in his life. Like, I don't know if you realize how incredible that is. To have a safe space where you feel like you can, to your friends, your middle school friends, that you can share some deep struggles in your life, that's amazing. That's amazing. And number two, that these middle school boys would just have the, the courage to say, let's do something. I, 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 just, I just praise our youth. And I praise the leaders of our youth areas for the culture they're creating here. That they would make kids understand that our generosity and our love for one another is just contingent on who we believe Christ to be. And so I'm just thankful for that. I think we all should be thankful for the kind of culture that is created here. Uh, and, and there's a lot of places that that culture is created. But what that story has done for me, it reminds me of the fact that I think that there's something in all of us. There's a part of all of us that desires kind of do, to do bigger work. We want fulfillment. We want to have impact. Nobody in here strives to live life in a way that's just struggling and taking. Uh, that's, that's not what we want to do. And I, I think it's a big deal that these kids felt a desire to respond. And, and I'm just so thankful for that. Because the reality is, is that we all, all of us in here, we want to work. We want to be a part of a mission that makes us a part of something bigger, that makes our hearts feel great, that brings some joy and happiness in our lives. We want to, to be bigger influencers. We want to have more impact on people. But, but here's what happens for us. Maybe you have felt this way. I've certainly felt this way in my life. There's this wrestling to want to be a part of something big and huge and impact people, but there's something that limits us. And when we, we try to live our lives in a way to find the keys to unlock all of this potential that we feel in our hearts, but we constantly feel like we're bumping up against a low ceiling that keeps us from getting to where we would desire. I don't know if you have that feeling. I think that's an innate feeling that all of us have probably went through in life. And that's kind of what I want to talk about a little bit today before we start jumping into the Great Commission. If we would go back to creation, I think so much of our condition today is understood properly if we understand creation in the fall in a better, uh, a better way. When we go back to creation and we look at the garden where this began, we would read that God created work for us. He created us to work. And in that work, we would find complete fulfillment. Complete fulfillment. The word says that we would find complete fulfillment in our work in the garden. And God himself in the pages of Genesis works creation himself. God creates multiple, hundreds, thousands of things. And after, after the things that he creates, the animals, the seas, the birds, man, he stops and he enjoys his creation. What does he say after all the things he creates? It's good. God looks on his creation and he goes, that's good. God finds fulfillment in his work. And what we have to understand, when God creates us, he creates us in his image, and he births within us some of his characteristics. And some of the characteristics that he has birthed in, uh, into us, one of them is work. God created us to work. He created us to work, 
And it commands in the garden, he commands the man to work the garden, to work the ground. God and man walk per- perfectly in the garden, and man finds complete fulfillment and satisfaction and substance in his work. But then, just like everything else that we know, through one act of disobedience, sin and death and destruction enters the world, and you and I and our knowledge and, and fulfillment of work changed in that very moment. Work was corrupted in that moment. The sin of the world breaks the fabric of the cosmos. God and man's perfect relationship is severed. And because of sin, brokenness, work is corrupted. What was once fully satisfying, fully, soulfully impactful, has become painful and corrupt. Now, listen to how Solomon, who Solomon, if you don't know, and I I, I reference Solomon a lot, I love Solomon. He's the wisest man, the Bible says, that has ever lived, period, end of story. And he has a lot of knowledge for us in that wisdom. And Solomon writes about this futility of work. And this is what he says in chapter 3. Chapter 3, starting in verse 9, it says, What gain has the worker from his toil? I have seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also... He has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toils. This is the God's gift to man. And so what Solomon is expressing in this passage is just the futility of work. He says, what is there to gain in all of this toil? Maybe you have felt that in your life. As you've worked, you thought, I've been working this job for 30 years. And I don't know where I'm at is any different than when I started. I maybe got a nicer car, but there's something off here. Maybe you felt that toil in your life. And then Solomon goes and confirms that God commanded his people to work. He said, it is the business of God work to keep his people busy. And Solomon sees all of his work. And he thinks, what have I gained? What have I gained? Something is off within me. Now, Solomon, if you don't know him, his treasures and, and wealth was immense. It could be say that, said that he is the richest man to ever walk this earth. That's kind of debatable, but there's no debate that Solomon is the richest man on earth at this time. And Solomon is a proficient worker. He creates temples and gardens and events. He is great at working. And at the end of all of it, by the way, you can go and see some of Solomon's gardens and work today. I think that's cool. Solomon looks at all of his creations, all of his works, and you know what he says? It's a chasing after the wind. This is all futile. He, it seems pointless to him. And he concludes with this. The best thing that we can do is to find some joy, do some good, and eat, drink, and be merry. That is the gift of God. And maybe you're like, yes, I'll have some of that, whatever that is. That sounds like a good life strategy for me. Be happy, do more good than bad, eat, drink, and be merry. That sounds like a good life. In fact, that may be your life's motto in some ways. But when Solomon writes this, in the middle of his passage, there is a wealth of knowledge to understand our human hearts. Last week, when, I, when we were baptizing people, one of the things that I reminded you in Jeremiah, it says that, that our hearts are corrupted, deceitful. Nobody can understand them. But what Solomon writes here brings some light to understanding our hearts. 
in the middle of this passage, he sheds light on us for ourselves, on, on our work, on his work, and ultimately on God's command for us to go later in Matthew 18. Ooh, sorry. He says that he has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, and this is, this is beautiful, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. This is a fascinating collection of verses because I think it unlocks for us some confusion and angst that dwells inside of us. It, it, it brings some solution to that. Solomon acknowledges the goodness of God in his creation. Solomon says that all the things that God creates in its time is beautiful. There is beauty in all of God's creation. He's not denying that, but he says, man, this feels like a toil here, doesn't it? There's beauty in everything, but man, there's a toil here. But then he says this, and God put eternity into the heart's of man. That is a provocative statement. Do you understand what he's saying in that? There's implications in that, that God has put eternity into man's heart. And then it says, yet, so that he also made it that he, we could not find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. And so what he is saying is that God made everything with beauty, and we have a sense of beauty inside of us, don't we? When you walk to the ocean, when you go to the mountains, you know beauty, and you gasp. That first time you saw the ocean, you were struck but it also says that we have a sense of eternity. That, that, that eternity means this. We know what perfection was. We know what perfection is. That there is something planted in us that is rooted in our hearts that knows what perfection was like before the fall, when work was fully satisfying, when we walked perfectly with the Lord, and we know perfection when we will be with the Lord in heaven in glory someday. There is a seed of eternity that is written in our hearts where we know that. It is unique in our hearts, in every one of us. And we want to know how we fulfill that. We have a desire to have that fulfilled in our lives. And there lies the struggle for you and I. Have you had a grandparent like, that is super reminiscent. Like, I remember my grandma talking about downtown Bluffton. Maybe some of you wiser people down the road can remember downtown Bluffton. And she would just say, oh, it was, it was so different than it is today. There was cars everywhere, people walking up and down the side. Like, all the buildings were filled. We would go down here and we'd get ice cream sodas. It was awesome. That's where we hung out. But, you know, downtown Bluffton's not like that anymore. And, and, and I think for my grandparents, like, because they knew what it was, they just... There's just not a satisfaction in it because they knew it when it was great and now it's not. And I think that this speaks a little bit to this eternity in our hearts that we know what perfection was, but yet we can't find it here on earth. We can't find it here. There is something that is planted and rooted in our hearts that knows what perfection is before the fall but yet we are struck in the corruptness of the world, surrounded by corrupt people in a corrupt world, and that process proves to be weary for you and I. That process proves to be weary. We long to understand this thing that's in us, that wants to be fulfilled, that has a deep desire to be impactful, but yet it says in his word that God blocked the light for that seed to take root. It says, yet who made it? He, he made it that we could not find out what God has done from the beginning to end. God blocked the light that would be required to allow that seed to grow into maturity. And so we feel a desire for ourselves, for our work to be eternal. 
but yet we are grieved because we are stuck in time. And what this understanding does is create a better knowledge of that emptiness inside of yourself, that desire to want to be more, to do more, to serve more, to find a job that makes you happier, more fulfilled, to be a bigger influence, a better impact on this world. You have a restlessness inside of your souls to be all of those things because you know eternity. Your heart knows eternity. It's planted in your heart, and there is nothing on this world that can ever compare or satisfy what was and what will be with him. No work will ever compare to that kind of work we did once in the garden or the work we will get to be in the future with the Lord in eternity. And so the author Solomon pins this beautifully. It brings us great understanding. It's wisdom. He's the wisest man to ever live. But, but Solomon only brings wisdom to what he knows and sees in front of him. He does not know the future. And he doesn't know how Christ is going to change the paradigm on our work. He doesn't know what Christ is going to bring to work. And so, obviously, because he doesn't know that, he says, what is there to gain? I might as well be joyful, do more good, Eat, drink, and be merry. That is the gift from God. But when Jesus comes, Jesus is going to change the paradigm on work. He gives us a new work. Like God gave us work in the garden that was fulfilling, Jesus is going to bring us a new work that is satisfying and fulfilling. Where God planted man in the garden to plant it and water it and harvest it in that time, Jesus changes the paradigm, and now our work is to plant and water and harvest his creation, his people. It doesn't mean that we quit our jobs. Okay, I don't want anybody going out and quitting your jobs after this. I don't want that on me. It just means that we find true fulfillment and true satisfaction in a greater work, the work of the Father, because his work is eternal. It's eternal. It's about the kingdom. It's ordained by God. And so we take that into under our understanding of the Great Commission. This is our new work on earth. And so let's open up Matthew 28, starting in verse 16, and we'll read through this together. Now, the 11 disciples went, up, went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. And so what takes place in this, when Jesus says this, like this is like monumental, like, this is like a pump-up song in your heart. Like, literally, when I read this, do you guys, that, that Phil Collins song coming in the air tonight, you know that song? Like, that, ver that, that literally came to my mind when I was reading this. I don't know why, that, when it's like halfway, that techno piano, and then all of a sudden, this is, I'm weird. Okay, I'm weird, and I read that. And it, because there is a slow anticipation as Jesus calls his disciples to the mountains. They don't know what's going to happen there, but they know that they're called there, and it seems to be a familiar place for them to go. Most scholars and experts believe that this mountaintop would have been a place that these disciples and Jesus would have met often in their time together. 
And when they get there, they see the resurrected Christ in all of his glory, and they worship him. They worship him, and then they doubt. There's some that doubt. And then Jesus says these prolific words that changed the world. Go, therefore, and make disciples of the nation, right? Baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you and know that I'm with you always to the end of the age. That is a... Because what happens here, friends, is you've got 11 people on the mountaintop. Because after Christ dies, people leave him. They don't... His followers reduce. He's got 11 people on a mountaintop. And he says to them, go and disciple the world. And do you know where those 11 people go? They go into the world. And today, you and I, because of those 11 people, are a part of 2.3 billion brothers and sisters in Christ. That is a world-redefining verse. It changes the paradigm on our work on earth. Jesus says, go, and wherever you go, that I'm there with you. I'm always with you to the end of the age as you do my work. And that is a promise that should encourage us, embolden us, strengthen us, comfort us, that as we go, therefore, he is with us to the end of the age, always. It changes the paradigm on work because we have now been given a work that is eternal and fully satisfying. It doesn't mean it's not hard. It's hard work, but it's eternal. It's eternal work for the Father. It's God ordained, and that work is to reconcile God's creation back to himself. We work to let people know that God has made peace with us and him, that we can have a whole relationship with the Father through Christ. And that is the work that we do, to go and tell. And that going and telling brings satisfaction the seed of eternity that is placed in our hearts. It brings fullness into our hearts because it has eternal impact. And so let's just have some honest moments here. The Great Commission, Matthew 28, those are hard things to hear. Those are hard things. The words that Jesus speaks here are not new for many of us. We know these words. Some of us, maybe they're new for. But for most of us, they're not new. We know that there is a desire that God would have for us to go and tell and create disciples. But for many of us, that just seems really uncomfortable. It just seems really uncomfortable or or just maybe way too much. Maybe we have the belief like, I don't know, Steve. Like, I I don't know if I want to do that. I don't don't want to be seen as that Jesus freak. I don't want to be seen as a weird guy at work that's praying over his meal, that's, that's talking to his friends about Jesus. We often call this aspect of going and telling evangelism, right? And that's a big word. Evangelism, it simply translates to gospel or good news, right? And so evangelism is about us telling the good news of God to his people, to bring, to let them know that there is a way back to God through Christ. That's what we do in evangelizing. And I think one of the major mistakes that we make in this area of evangelizing, making disciples, going and telling, is that we listen to the wrong voices, We listen to the wrong voices here. We often listen to the voices of man and not the voice of God. Because look, the voice of God is really clear here. It's go and tell. It's pretty simple. But man's voice tells us what? Man, being a witness to Jesus is a little awkward, a little unwanted. Uh, Our culture likes to paint itself as one that's tolerant of all things, unless you're doing something about Jesus. We like to think that we are tolerant of everything, but we would prefer you to keep your Jesus to yourself. 
And as a believer, do you not feel that? Like, you feel that pressure to, like, I need to keep that in because I don't want to offend people. I don't want to be the weird person. I, I, I think that's out there. People don't want, we think that people don't want to be bothered with the gospel. And so what that does in us is it creates just a bunch of Christians who live their lives in quarantine. We're afraid to speak the words of Christ, to pray, to be authentic to the way of Jesus, because we don't want to be known as some religious zealot or freak. And so we box our faith in, and we put it in a nice little place where it fits well and seems not to offend people. And for most of us, that place fits Sunday. Sunday feels good for it, but not so much on Wednesday. And so we quarantine Jesus, quarantine him into certain areas of our lives. And so we, we legitimately have to ask ourselves the question. I've had to ask myself this question. Are, are you a Christian in quarantine? Are, are you a Christian in quarantine? Do, do you love Jesus, but you're afraid of the ridicule that you might face because of your faith? Do you live in that fear? If so, listen, I think that this series is going to be helpful for you because there is a way to go about going and telling and evangelizing that comes out of your God-created authentic self in your giftings and your wiring. And I think for some of us, that will be a fundamental shift for you in this. But we first have to understand this, that this command to go and tell is not a command for some. To go, therefore, is a command for all. It's a command for all. There, there are some people who read this and say, well, he's only speaking to the, the apostles, the disciples here. Only those 11 did he give these commands to, to go and tell. He didn't give that command to the average run-of-the-mill Christian like you and me. I don't, I don't have to do that. It's somebody else's job. It's, it's not me. But that's not true. It's not true in his word. The command that was given to the 11 is a command for all that, that would come, that all would, who come to know him who come to be his disciples, because you and I are disciples if we live our lives based on the truth of Christ. And he clearly says to the 11 here, teach them to observe all that I have commanded them. You. All that I have commanded. So we are to do all that Jesus has commanded. And in this command, he says, go and tell. We can't get around it. I, I, I know that sometimes we think disciple making and, and evangelism are things left for the super Christians out there, the whoever they are, those guys who are really good, they're really faithful, they have more faith than I do, more knowledge than I do, that it's for those rock star Christians. I'm just an amateur here. And so I'll leave that stuff to those who have a little bit more giftings there. Guys, that's, Jesus not buying that excuse. He, he poured his life into you. He poured his spirit into you. There's not a junior varsity Holy Spirit. We've been given all from him not limited. He gifted you with all you need to make him known. We just need to understand how we do it. We just need to understand how we do it. And so we have to understand, the last thing here is that go therefore is not limited by your gifting. Uh, we grow in, in to believe that witnessing and going and telling and evangelism is a gift that God gave to some, right, but not to all. That he gave some to all, some the gift of evangelism, but not to all. But it's not limited. God didn't give the gift of evangelism. He, there's an office of evangelist. It's a title, but giftings are, are different. Evangelism is a command for all of us. To go and tell is a command for all of us. And so what we want to do over the next three weeks before Christmas, it's so hard for me to say that right now, that Christmas is coming up, is that, that, is that we would focus on what it looks like for you and I to be active in this command. 
to be the kind of people that go and tell wherever God puts us. And to do that, we're going to look at different people within Scripture who did it a little differently. There are people in Scripture who, who all did this a little bit differently uh, than one another. One of the major hurdles that I think gets in our way in this belief about how, uh, in this going and telling, is a belief of, of how we're supposed to do it. Uh, we grow up believing like this going and telling, this evangelism is like, you know, we got to stand up in our offices and we have to awkwardly kind of just, I got to tell, I got to preach the Bible right here. Is that what, we, we think that that's kind of what evangelism is, that we have to put Jesus into our work conversations, that we have to walk and pray for people and give Bibles. And those are certainly ways to do that, but they're not all the ways. They're not all the ways. There are different ways. And when, when, we, when we don't know that, it stops us from doing kingdom work, eternal work, which I have already told you is the new work that God has given us for us to find satisfaction and fulfillment in life. It stops us from doing kingdom work because we are led to believe that it needs to be done in a certain way. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to process six different types of natural evangelistic kind of going and telling styles that we see present within the pages of Scripture. Six different people that we know and love in Scripture who have all done it differently, who let God leverage how they were created, how they were gifted, how they were wired for the renown of his, of his name. And so I think for a lot of it, this is going to be freeing and encouraging to us because not everybody's a door knocker. Not everybody's somebody that can walk up to a door, knock on a door, and create a conversation about Jesus out of nowhere. And the great thing is, is that God doesn't expect that from all of us. There's good news in that. Being fulfilled by the Great Commission in our lives is important. It is what it brings satisfaction to our souls. Not that it's not hard, but it's the work that God has given us on, on this earth in this time that it's an eternal kingdom-focused work that brings nourishment to our souls as we seek to satisfy that seed of eternity that is planted within our hearts. Because out of his work, uh, we, we find that. Everything else is a toil. And we get that YOLO mentality that you only live once, so you might as well enjoy it. But that does not know the Great Commission and the new work that Christ gave us on earth. So uh, I, I'm excited about walking through these things with you. My hope for you is that you sit and listen and note on these things. And as you hear the stories of, of God's people in his word and how they spread his truth in their giftings, that you might recognize within you some of the things that God gifted you and how you, are, you can, through your wiring and your gifting, go and tell in a way that's authentic to who Christ has created you to be. And so we've got a great next three weeks planned for us. And we look forward to seeing you back here in the next three weeks. Let's pray. Uh, Lord, we just come before you, and we just thank you that you, uh, you are sustaining, that you are thoughtful of us, that you, you would bring us a, a new type of work that would bring satisfaction to that eternity that's written on our hearts. And so, God, help us to just come to the understanding today that all that wrestling, uh, all that, like, feeling a void and not feeling like we can satisfy that, all that emptiness, it's there because we knew what it once was and we know what it will be. And nothing on this earth compares to that. The only thing that does is you. And so, Lord, lead us into that understanding that we might give our hearts and our lives to you because you are the only one and only thing that is satisfying ever. We love you, Lord, and we pray this in your amazing name. Amen.